Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time, Lord. We're so thankful for your work in salvation through, through Christ alone, Lord, as we will see today through your servant Paul, Lord, as he has written to us your inspired word. Lord, might we take it to heart, Lord, might it be planted deep in us that we would, it would grow and that we would change because of it, Lord. I pray that if there's any sin that remains with us that is unconfessed, Lord, that we would confess it before you now, Lord, that we'd repent of our sin, that we'd be a a repentant people, Lord, that, that we would seek to conform ourselves to the image of Christ in obedience, Lord, because we love him and we want to be more like him. And Lord, that would flow out into the church, that we would love those around us. We love the body of Christ well, as Rocky has been speaking to this weekend and the men's conference and this morning, Lord, that we would be a people that love each other well and press on in service until you come back. It's in Christ name we pray. Amen. All right, so if you turn to Acts 20, Acts 20, we've been here for a little bit, uh, 24, starting in verse 24, and so when I was studying for this, again, uh, I did my, I did my, you know, uh, I, I hyped myself up, I said, all right, David, we're going to get through, you know, you know, last time I tried to do it, I tried to tackle 12 verses, and fell way short of that, I think I did four. So this time I was like, well, I can get through four verses. We're going to go 24 through 27, uh, but we are just going to get through 24 today as we just consider just the the meat that is packed into verse 24. Uh, As I studied it, as I really tried to understand what the text was saying, the main points, the theme, the sub points, there's just so much here. The Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit are trying to communicate with us And so we are going to camp out here in verse 24, but I'm going to read through 27 just for some context. So starting in verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I, test to, this, therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Alrighty, so as we dive in today, I would like to ask you a question just to open things up. Again, I know I'm setting you up, but just indulge me for a second. What is something or someone, perhaps, that you hold dear? Something or maybe someone? Chapel. Your mother? Yep, absolutely. What's something you hold dear or someone you hold dear? Relationship or friendship? Layla, nice. Friendship, yeah. Ava, nice. Jeff, guy. Layla, nice, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Jackson? My friends. Your friends, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of just the general theme is that we hold those who are close to us dear. Uh, again, some people have valuable possessions, things that they, they treasure, that they value, that they hold dear to themselves. But yes, typically it's mainly people that we hold dear to ourselves. We hold dear. And those are all good things. And the Lord has gracious, graciously given us those friendships, those relationships that we might glorify and honor him through them. Now, by no means am I trying to guilt trip any of you at all. But as we see in our text today, right away, Paul comes out with a statement and he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. 
Now, as we begin to unpack this weighty statement and what it truly means in its context, we need to first go back and understand where we are in the scope of this passage. So we're going to recap real quick and see where we've been. We've been slowly working our way through this chapter, and we've seen Paul making his way around the Mediterranean, and now he's stopping here uh, to, to see, send off these, well, to be sent off by these Ephesian elders. He is you know, come to Ephesus multiple times. He's not in Ephesus currently. He is at port. He is trying to, he's trying to leave to go back to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, if possible. And he calls these Ephesian elders to himself. By all accounts, these Ephesian elders are faithful men. They're faithful, faithful leaders and elders within their congregation, shepherding and guarding the flock among them. This is a healthy church, as it seems, They're committed to the word of God and the fellowship of the saints. They're committed to living holy lives. We know this just by the testimony in Acts and and Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. There was a great love that the Apostle Paul had for the church at Ephesus and for these elders, as we will see later in this chapter. And last week, Rob took the time to unpack what it meant to be bound by the Spirit. This idea that in all things, believers... As believers, we are bound to live according to the will of God. Whenever we are walking outside of the principles and commands of Scripture, we dishonor God by our disobedience. So like Paul, we are bound by the Spirit of God who testifies to our conscience whether we are walking rightly in accordance with the will of God or not. So after verse 22 and verse 23, Paul explains that he fully expects persecution and trials to await him in Jerusalem and thereafter. And the Holy Spirit and within him in some supernatural way is testifying to him these things. And again, we note that Paul, as an apostle, special messenger of God, was given abilities and spiritual gifts that we are not in this age. And the Spirit of God does not testify to people in this, this way, giving them promptings or, or these, these um, urgings. So in summary, in this text, Paul is saying farewell to these Ephesian elders because he understands that he will not see them again. He's defending his ministry from slander and opposition that he undoubtedly faced and that was swirling around Ephesus and these Ephesian elders as they try to minister and as they try to establish the church and shepherd the flock. Paul is trying to clear the air because he faced opposition everywhere he went. And he's saying goodbye. He's saying goodbye to these people because they were dear to him. They were dear to him like your friends are dear to you. Paul was a fierce partner in ministry of the gospel with these elders, these men who were called, set apart. And we'll see that later in our text as we work through that. I think Rob's going to be teaching that text. I'm a little jealous as we've been going through slowly. I thought I was going to be able to be teaching on Paul's true farewell with the Ephesian elders, but... I think, Paul, uh, I think Rob's going to get that, so we'll let him take it. But here we go, verse 24. So the thesis of this passage, the thesis of this text today, is that self-denial is a prerequisite to serving God fully. You must deny yourself in order to serve the living God. You cannot serve him fully. You cannot serve him rightly if you are living selfishly 
for your own desires and your own comforts. Self-denial is a prerequisite to serving God fully. And so firstly, as we jump in, we'll look at Paul's self-denial. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. In Luke chapter 9, we see Jesus proclaim this same idea. He says in Luke chapter 9, 23 through 24, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For those of you who are in first service or those of you who are going to first service, you'll hear that a lot this morning as Rocky delightfully brought the word to us speaking of the great commission that we must follow Christ and call others to follow him along with us. He says he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. In verse 24, Christ says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Self-denial is a prerequisite to serving God. Like I mentioned a few weeks ago, Men and women apart from God are glory thieves. We seek to usurp God and play Lord of our own lives, to set ourselves on the throne of our own heart, usurping God's throne. Every Christian can be tempted to fall into this mindset. It's not just worldly unbelievers that are glory thieves. We seek to be glory thieves in our flesh. You need to look in the mirror and realize that you can be tempted into this. This idea that I need to look after myself and tend to my own needs before I can help and serve somebody. This self-help, self-affirming culture that we live in will tell you that in order for you to live fully, you must look within yourself for your identity and love yourself as you are. This is completely contrary to Scripture. Jesus says that you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Enjoying the blessings and benefits only found in Christ. We are not wired to think and to live this way. Again, like we talked about, naturally, apart from Christ, we look only within to find value and to find hope. Unbelievers hold their lives and their comforts very dear to them, unlike the Apostle Paul. But Jesus came and said that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, to enter the family of God. You must forsake your old fleshly desires. You must forsake your self-love. You must deny yourself. In John 3, 3, 3 through 7, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? He cannot enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. When Paul says that he doesn't consider his life of any account dear to himself, he is saying that only by the power of the Holy Spirit working within him, which has regenerated his heart and given him newness, newness of life to walk in holiness. 
No unbeliever can live selflessly like this. This is a spirit-empowered work of God. You cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps and live this way. You must ask God to perform a work in you, a miraculous work. It is only through a correct biblical understanding of who God is and who man is that we can begin to live rightly before a holy God. Examine yourselves today. Ask the question, do I regard my life and my comforts above God's glory and his gospel? If the answer is yes, then I say to you, stop fooling yourself. Stop trying to set up your little kingdom. It will come crashing down. And it will always leave you feeling empty and dissatisfied. Bend the knee to Christ. Offer up your life to him in his service. For he gave up his that you might live for him. All right. So we go on the text in 24, which we're staying in 24, but it says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord. I pointed out that the main idea of this text is self-denial, being a prerequisite to serving God fully. And as we continue down, we will see that played out. Paul says that he doesn't consider his life dear to himself. Well, he tells us why. He says, so that I may finish my course in the ministry. We cannot accomplish all that God has for us when we are caught up in selfish, self-exalting, worldly living. We must always be thinking about how we are to live in light of the commandments and principles of the Word of God. Paul, speaking to the Corinthian church, says of his daily discipline in 1 Corinthians 9, says, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself may not be disqualified. What Paul is really saying in this text in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is that I am always on guard for my gym guys over here. No days off, right? Again, this is a quality that we're to, we to be above reproach. It's a quality that is listed as being, being possessed by men who aspire to be elders of the church, but it also applies to all Christians at all times. We are to live lives that are unquestionably selfless and motivated solely by the glory of our Father. So that when you make witness of the grace of God and when you proclaim the gospel message, tr gospel truth to somebody, they could not come along and say, hey, I know you. <laughs> you don't live out these truths that you're telling me to believe. You really don't believe them. It doesn't seem like you believe them because you live contrarily to your beliefs. You live for yourself. You don't actually live, you don't actually believe what you're saying. This is what they will say, guys, if you try to bring the gospel to bear. And so what, what Paul is saying in this text, he says, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave. I, I, I have become above reproach. Why? 
He says, so that after I have preached to others, after I have proclaimed the good news of the gospel of God, how he has saved a sinner like me, I may not be disqualified. Basically saying, so I'm not a, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm backing up what I'm saying by how I'm living according to the truth of God. Again, might it never be said of you that you are hypocritical and you don't practice what you believe. It is my desire that you would be zealous for God like Paul and it would be evident by your good works and your righteous living. So next we'll see Paul's ministry fulfillment. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Now, as we noted earlier, Paul is leaving the Ephesian elders for the last time. He knows that trials and suffering await him in Jerusalem. And again, he's definitely, he's seeing his ministry come to a close. He's longing to be with Christ, recognizing that it's best that he's with the body, serving in ministry right now. But his ministry is coming to a close. He knows he's not going to see these Ephesian elders again. Paul, in the words of Jonathan Edwards, had eternity stamped on his eyeballs. It's one of my favorite quotes by Jonathan Edwards, that, Lord, would you stamp eternity on my eyeballs, that, that, that there are lenses through which I see everything, reminders that this world is fading away, that the comforts I enjoy are fleeting, that I would have an eternal perspective looking to Christ, that I would be worthy of his name. And Paul had this perspective. He had eternity stamped on his eyeballs. That is to say, Paul was always looking forward to his eternal fellowship with Christ. So it's not shocking here when he speaks of finishing his course in ministry, which he received from the Lord Jesus. This idea of finishing a course or a race comes up. Many of you probably thought about it as well, but it came up in his letter to Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 Starting at verse 6, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. And surely this is what the Apostle Paul is thinking in, in, in Acts chapter 20 as we see him here talking about his course, his ministry that he's received from the Lord Jesus. He's almost finished the race. And he stands with a clear conscience, being innocent of the blood of all men as we have seen. And I pray that this would be you as well, that you would have this mindset, not just at the end of your life, guys, have this mindset right now. Always be preparing for when you meet Christ face to face. That you would have a clear conscience in that sense. That you would leave no sin unrepentant in your life, but you would confess your sin and you would live zealously for God right now. There's sin that remains and we struggle. We'll never be able to obtain perfection, but as far as you are able that you would be able to say with Paul that you have kept the faith and you have fought well in your spiritual battle. 
And Paul in this text in 2 Timothy gives us a clue into who will receive this crown of righteousness. He's looking forward to being with Christ. Who will be awarded by the Lord? He says, not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Isn't that sweet? Do you long for the appearing of Christ? Guys, it's simple. How do you know if you're saved? How do you know if you're in right relationship with God the Father? Do you love his son? Do you love Christ? That's it. That's really it. Do you long to see his face? To bow down and worship at the feet of the one who bought you, who redeemed you. Christian faith is made evident by a clear love for Jesus, his person and work. Well, you may ask, how can I tell if someone loves Jesus? If that's a mark of being a believer, how can I tell if someone loves Jesus? Is it because they wear a cross necklace or because they've never missed a Wednesday night youth service? No. We can spot those who love Christ by the way they love those around them, by the way they obey the words of Christ in keeping with holy living. Because you can't love Christ and ignore his children, you have to love the church. You have to love the body of Christ. As Rocky has been teaching us Saturday, Friday night all the way into this morning, you have to love the body of Christ. And as we see in this passage, the Apostle Paul loved these men dearly valued their friendship and partnership in the ministry. And that only flows out of a love for Jesus. Having a mentality that propels your thinking and motivations forward to the hour in which you will see his face. Glory, unbridled, full majesty, authority, and purity. And we will weep at the feet of Jesus, the lover of our souls. Guys, I've stopped here and taken some time to stress the importance of a love for the church and a love for the body of Christ. And again, I mentioned it earlier, but the only reason I'm mentioning it to you guys is because this is where I believe the text takes us. But I, for those young, young men, who, who all went to the men's conference this weekend? Good, good. I'm so glad. That was most of you. We've been getting hammered, haven't we, young guys? Rocky has not left any stone unturned. Four lessons, again, five if you count this morning, concerning the Christian's responsibility and joyful obligation to serve and press into the body of Christ. As I have been exhorted and I have been convicted, I need to think more deeply about my personal relationship with the church. I flip the exhortation to you. Do you love the church? And does that flow from a love of Christ? Because a Christian who doesn't love the church and doesn't want to be involved, that isn't a Christian. They don't exist. We call those people unbelievers. Because if you don't look to the return of Christ with love and longing, 
I'm sorry, totally skipped ahead. We need to take a hard look in the mirror and consider these things. How do we love the church? How do we love one another? Because if we don't love and long for the appearing of Christ, you will be in terror and dread of the appearing of Christ. And you should be, rightly, guys. Because apart from Christ, we are fully deserving of eternal hell and judgment. All of us, every single one. The Apostle Paul himself said, I am the chiefest of sinners, the least deserving of the grace of God. Might we say that too? So nextly, we'll see Paul's ministry stewardship. Paul's ministry stewardship. We move on. He said that he doesn't hold his life dear to himself, that he might finish his course in the ministry which he received from the Lord Jesus. If we look back on our text again, this is not Paul's ministry. This is not Paul's ministry. It's Christ's. It's Christ's ministry. This is a part of self-denial. In Ephesians 2, we are told that we have been saved only by the grace of God. We are told that we have been saved not on the basis of any good things which we have done. And not only that, but it goes on to say in verse 10 in Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Guys, everything that we do should be done for the glory of God. So where do we find our glory? We always seek our glory. We always seek our comfort. Where do we find our fulfillment and satisfaction in the things that we do? In him. We find our glory in Christ. When he is glorified, we glory with Christ in that. If anyone could boast of how successful their ministry was or how influential they have been, it would be Paul. But we are stewards. We are caretakers of what the Lord has given us. And we see that in the life of Paul. We see that in the life of Paul. This is the ministry in the, in the course that he had received from the Lord Jesus. It's not his own. He doesn't hold tightly to it, and we shouldn't either. Nextly, we'll see the seriousness of the gospel message. Hey, ladies over here, I need you to pay attention. Thank you. We'll see the seriousness of the gospel message. He said, that I may finish my course in ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Why does Paul continually go from town to town being mocked, afflicted, persecuted, stoned, rejected? Why? Why wouldn't you just hang it up, Paul? Nobody, you, nobody, nobody wants you to come. The Jews definitely didn't want him to come. Why does he keep doing it? Why did Paul keep pressing back into ministry, being shipwrecked, forsaken? Because the gospel message is serious so that he received this ministry from the Lord Jesus solemnly testifying seriously earnestly pleading urge, urging people to hear the words of Christ guys the gospel message isn't this self-help pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of message it isn't a cute little message that you find on your grandma's pull-off calendar, guys. 
It's not what it is. It is the only thing that stands in the way of your eternal damnation and judgment for you and billions of people, some of which are in this room right now sitting right next to you, some of which are in your immediate family, some of which might be upstairs worshiping. Guys, going to church doesn't make you a believer. It may be an indication that you love Jesus and that you have been saved through his blood, but it does nothing for your salvation. Guys, eternity is a long time. And you may think you have time or may think that what I'm saying is nonsense, but while I have you here, glued to your seat, I must warn you, the wrath of God is coming. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And if you are, if you have not yet submitted to Christ as Lord, you will face that wrath of God, that just wrath of God. Guys, this is serious. The gospel message is serious. And if you think you're sitting here today, you're, you're just too cool for school, and you just come to youth because it's fun to hang out with your friends, and you guys, that's great. It's great to have friends. It's great to, great to, again, glorify God through those friendships. But if you sit here and totally blow off God's word and just say, you know what, maybe one day, but not right now. I don't really feel like changing my whole life or serving Christ as Lord. Guys, you'll have a rude awakening, a rude awakening. Hell is described as a place of unrelenting torment and eternal, eternal, unquenchable fire. So if you want to turn with me to another passage, we're going to go to Luke 16. I want to camp out here because, again, this is not the first time Paul in Acts 20 has mentioned the gospel as being solemn or solemnly testifying the gospel. And so we really need to understand what that means, the seriousness of the gospel message, the gravity of eternity. So Luke 16, 19 through 31. Starting in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he had habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus, Lazarus bad, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here to you will not be able, 
and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said to them, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said to them, No, he said to him, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they, did not, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I don't really need to add much to that. This is the seriousness of the gospel message. This is what's at stake. The idea that the torment and fire of hell is so unbearable that the rich man would ask for a tiny droplet of water to ease even the, the slightest pain and suffering. But this is what awaits those who oppose God, guys. Our sin of not ascribing God glory, our sin, the, the sin that we commit is so serious against a holy God that it is right and just that we would be punished. This is why the Apostle Paul went from town to town proclaiming the gospel. Because he knew that this was the fate of those poor wretches that he preached to. Those that hated him even. Paul knew that he was not any more deserving of God's grace than the people he spoke to. Again, he called himself the chiefest of sinners. And the gospel message is solemn. It is serious. This isn't self-help. This is life and death. Then what does Abraham say to the man as he goes back to, to ask to warn his family? Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What he's saying is they have the word of God. The word of God is sufficient to save unbelievers. The word of God is sufficient. With a, the, the inner working of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the heart of an unbeliever, to bring them to newness of life through the preaching of the gospel. This is how men are saved. And the man says, well, if I were to come back or if Lazarus was to go back and they were to see a dead man proclaim the gospel to them, this would surely do it. This act, this miraculous act of seeing the dead man rising, they would listen. Abraham says, no, they would not. They would not listen. I don't know if your mind is drawn to this, but it reminds me of the scoffers at the foot of the cross saying to Christ, if you were to come down, we would believe in you. If you come down, we would believe that you are the Son of God. Would they have believed? No. No. Jesus performed many miracles. He did great things. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He healed many people. And that isn't what... That isn't what was the foundation of their belief. This didn't, this didn't bring people into the fold of God. It is a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit that does this. I cannot persuade you or reason with your intellect in order for you to be saved. You need to fall on your knees and repent and ask that God would perform a miraculous work within you. Again, this is the seriousness of the gospel message. And now we're going to look at the defining trait that Paul ascribes to the gospel. 
calls it the grace, the gospel of the grace of God. So let's look at the gracious, the gracious gospel of God in light of the seriousness of it. He said, as we wrap up, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. We've seen Paul describe the manner in which he testifies the gospel solemnly. And now we'll see him describe the nature of the gospel message itself. It is gracious. It is gracious. In Romans 5, 6, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone dare even, would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God in him. This morning, do you recognize the love of God through the cross? We will never, never be able to understand why God in his glory and in his majesty would save sinners like you and like me. It is a mystery far too great for you or for I. We outlined the wrath that awaits those who hate God, those who have not believed in Christ. But how are we saved from this wrath? What does the text say? We are saved through him, through him through Christ. I have a portrait at home of Charles Spurgeon above my desk, and underneath it has a quote from him. It's probably one of my favorite quotes. My brother sent it as a birthday present last year, and I look at it all the time, but the quote says, my theology can be summed up in four words. Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. That's it. If you're here, if you're here this morning as a believer, that's that's it. Jesus died for me. That motivates all of your thinking, all of your action. That Christ died for you while you were yet a sinner. Christ, in His perfection, in His purity, in His excellence, left His throne and was charged for your guilt and your shame and your sin. That's it. Jesus died for me. He has set his affection on you if you are in him this morning and God demonstrates his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. One of my favorite hymns, I'll read the lyrics to you, just, as, just, to, just to ponder as we consider what the cross means to us, what Christ has done for your behalf. I'll read these words. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, 
Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. This is the gracious gospel of God. How will you respond to it? If you are in Christ here this morning, those words ought to strike to your very soul. Because if you are in Christ, you know that you are one that deserved that sentence. That Christ drank the cup of his Father's wrath. He bore that wrath on your behalf against your sin. And it was your sin that made it necessary for your Lord to die. You should weep at these words. We should weep at these words. We weep because of the grace of God upon vile, worthless sinners. Christ dragging your burden of sin to Calvary, dressed in your dirty, sin-saturated rags. You robed in his fine, pure robes of majesty. Will you live like Paul, denying yourself, seeking to honor your king? Or will you seek your own desires and your own glory, storing up wrath for that inevitable day of judgment that is rapidly coming? Consider these things. Please consider these things. I'll close by reading a doxology from 1 Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That living hope is Christ. Will you please, please trust in him? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are a needy people. Lord, you are a gracious God. And you love to give good gifts to your children. Lord, for those here, Lord, that are in Christ, Lord, who have trusted and repented of their sin, we rejoice with heaven this morning. Lord, we rejoice for the communion of saints. Lord, for the church that you are building. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And Lord, we believe that this morning. We know that. We trust that. Lord, help us to trust it more and more. Clinging to your word, seeking to honor you in all obedience, Lord. Lord, we confess that we don't often honor you as Lord as we ought. Lord, we don't often esteem you as we ought. We do not deny ourselves and take up our cross as we ought to. Lord, we pray that you would do this within us. Lord, that you would, by your spirit, enable us to live lives that are holy and pleasing to you, disciplined for the purpose of godliness, Lord. I pray for these young people, Lord, as the schemes of the evil one, Lord, the, the fleshly desires of their own hearts, Lord, creep in 
and seek to dethrone you. Lord, I pray that you would not allow that to happen, but they would live zealous, pure lives for your glory. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the church. Lord, might we love the church well, as Christ does. It's in his name we pray. Amen.